The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, I'm Patricia Halligan, and this is Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Only 10% of people with substance use disorder actually receive treatment. Today's episode revolves around recovery coaches and how they can help individuals struggling with addiction move toward recovery. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could put a recovery coach in every doctor's office, one for every family medicine clinic, one for every surgical clinic, OBGYN clinic, mental health clinic? Patients and families need help navigating treatment resources, finding sober support also. They need a mentor and they need a guide who is knowledgeable about addiction. A recent study published in Substance Abuse Treatment, March of 2021, integrated peer recovery coaches into general medical settings. These are people who have their own lived experience of sobriety and recovery. They integrated them into general medical settings to work with people diagnosed with opioid use disorder, and the findings were overwhelmingly positive. The presence of peer recovery coaches helped decrease the rate of patient hospitalization, emergency room visits, increased treatment retention, and abstinence from opioids. I am honored to introduce today's guest, Keith Greer. Keith Greer is a real-life professional recovery coach and a licensed clinical social worker. He has 40 years of experience as a keynote speaker, executive and recovery coach, social worker, family therapist, and an addiction specialist. In addition to being a highly sought-after recovery coach, Keith is a master trainer at Recovery Coach University in Rochester, New York, where he trains people on the practice, art, and science of recovery coaching. He works with individuals and families impacted by substance use disorder and uses evidence-based practices. He honors people as their own best resource. Keith holds a very passionate belief that every individual is the expert of their own life, even when they believe they are not, and that no one is more motivated to find recovery than the person struggling with active addiction. In addition to his work as a coach and a trainer, Keith is the producer and host of the Helping Conversation podcast. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trish. So glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me to uh, spend some time with you. I'm glad to have you here. How did you get into recovery coaching? Oh, that's a great question uh, with a long history to it. So, um, you know, I do identify as a person in my own long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, I um, was one of those folks back in the 70s that, that found himself in treatment by the time I was about 17 or 18. Uh, and I, I always say that it was a, a blessing in disguise as it uh, not only um, played a role in me moving my life in a, a much more productive direction, but it was re- where I found uh, a vocation that I was really passionate about. And uh, 
I was blessed at a very early age to have some helping people in my life who were, who were just really impactful. Uh, and I think about to this day, um, and I knew then uh, that, that, you know, help being in some kind of helping role was, uh, was what I wanted to do. And so, uh, as you said, I'm a, a, I'm a clinical social worker, and I came up through kind of the traditional clinical world, both in, the, in, in, uh, in substance use disorder treatment, uh, family therapy, private practice. And then about 20 years ago, I started reading about coaching. Now, not recovery coaching specifically, the larger world of professional coaching. And, and I just became so excited at what I was reading um, because there, there's, been a, there's been a part to, I always say, to the arc of my career mm-hmm. that even from early on recognized that, that, were, that, I was, that I was getting this very subtle but clear message that I think a lot of helping people do, that I'm responsible to fix. I'm responsible to have people's answers as the helping person. That's a lot, very of, often, a lot of pressure. And, and very often people, as you know, people come in, they're looking for you to have the answer. Absolutely. And I remember even early on in my career, having some sense that that just doesn't feel right. Like, you know, to this day, I, I, I joke that most days I can barely keep my you-know-what together, <laughs> never, never mind <laughs> thinking that I have the answers for somebody else's life. And when I started reading about coaching, Trish, that's what jumped off the page at me, that it was a practice that really asks you, as a helping person, facilitating this specific type of conversation, to really dig into, essentially, at the end of the day, for me, two thoughts that I now feel in my bones. So thought number one, I don't have anybody's answers. I have no answers for any other human being. And thought two, everybody has their own answers. Even when, as you said during, during the introduction, even when they think they don't. And that ah. if I can be patient enough with them, listen deeply, help create and hold a safe and trusting space, treat them with autonomy, which is something we'll, we'll talk about, mm-hmm. um, that people will find their answers and that they don't need me to say, here's what I think is best. And, and so I like transitioned my clinical practice to coaching. And for the last 20 years, I, I coach in the executive coaching side of things and I coach in the recovery side of things. And as you said, I I was blessed to partner with an amazing woman that you and I both know and love, uh, Lori Drescher, mm-hmm. and uh, do, uh, do a lot of training under her roof of uh, Recovery Coach University. Now, if we take a look historically, is this how people with a substance use disorder typically get treated? People like uh, that try to help them, do they believe you yeah. know all the answers inside of you? And let me ask you what your goals oh, are. Oh, no, 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 no. So, so you're going to get my bias and okay. I will always, Trish, I will always frame this as my bias. This, I, I, you know, this I, just, I love your honesty. <laughs> I, I can always count on your opinion. Yep. This and your bias. How I look at things from, quite honestly, from spending 40 years in some different corners of the treatment and recovery industry. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it is not how we have treated people with substance use disorder. We, we have told people what, what recovery is for them. 
Um, We have sold a very rigid and narrow definition of recovery, which has basically been some combination of inpatient, outpatient, total abstinence, and 12-step adherence. Now, this is a key piece for me, Trish, has inpatient, outpatient, total abstinence, 12-step adherence saved the lives of millions of people? Yes. Sure. But what we've, what we're really been wrapping our head around over the last 15, 20 years is all of the people that it didn't help, that, that, that 12 step didn't resonate with them or Mm -hmm. what we're really learning, especially today in light of the opioid epidemic, and nobody knows this better than you, not everybody needs to be hit on the head with abstinence. Um, That there's, there's some other models out there. There's this concept of multiple pathways. Um, You know, another area that is a soapbox area for me is just even the language we've used that, that we have, we have, so, I always equate how, because language is everything. Words create worlds. Language mm-hmm. guides how we think, how mm-hmm. we feel, thus how we respond to a situation. So I have always equated language used in the world of substance use disorder with language used in the world of people who are cancer survivors because I'm a cancer survivor. Oh, so, I didn't know um, that. So I, I was treated for colon cancer at the age of 40. Okay. Now... We have spent generations taking somebody with one of the most complex disease states known to humankind called substance use disorder, yep. and we have called them a name. Yes. We have called them an addict. Yes, or an alcoholic. Or an alcoholic, yep. right? Or worse. Or right? a, dr- a, dr- a drug abuser. A drug abuser or, you know, junkie or, right? Right. So- we, we've taken this disease, it's, we, we, we all know it's, it's a disease, it's recognized uh, uh, in the medical community as a diagnosable um, um, disease of the reward centers of the brain, some would say, the neurological piece to it. And we have taken all of that complexity and have historically wrapped that all up into the simplistic, judgmental, stigmatized word, you are an addict. Now, here's yes. my, where I equate things. If I walked in tonight to a cancer, you know, kind of a support group for people in recovery from cancer, yeah, I would not walk into that meeting and say, hi, everybody, my name's Keith and I'm a cancer. No, you wouldn't. It doesn't even, it doesn't even sounds funny, right? It's Coming not, out not, of my mouth. It's not who you are. It's not who I am. It's, and it's yet what we, you have. It's what you have. Yes. And so, and so one of the, you know, to me, one of the most exciting um, things that is that has come along again over the last 15 years or so is is our recognition uh, around our need to use person first medically appropriate language and i know there might be some listeners that are saying ah this is kind of a touchy-feely thing the research in the world of stigma is off the charts there is no question um there's you, there's you know you know what the word stigma means what is it lacking compassion but, yeah so you're right. It, it, right. Yeah, absolutely. You taught right. me a lot about language, Keith. I mean, I remember we did a movie together about opioid yeah. use disorder uh, last summer, and uh, you were talking to me about, well, you can't say dirty urine or clean urine. And I'm like, oh, all right. You know, I, I, was, I, was trained, I was trained to speak a certain language. and uh, We all I, were. So was right? I. And you can't so say drug, drug abuse or alcohol abuse. I mean, that has a nasty connotation, right? Yeah, the person is a bad so- person. 
a bad person. So let's, so let's, you know, use that term. So there's a gentleman out of Harvard by the name of John Kelly. He does a lot of research, high level research in the world of substance use disorder. I'm actually interviewing him next week. Oh, how cool. Oh, I got to listen to that one. Um, So he has this piece of research that, that is pretty well known where he, these were medical professionals and he gave them a description of a patient and the wording of the two scenarios was exactly the same with one exception. Okay. One called the person, person with substance use disorder, just as mm-hmm. they would say, I'm a person with cancer. Sure. And the other scenario used the term you just used, substance abuser. And then right. Dr. Kelly does whatever researchers do to measure stigma, right. st- stigmatized thoughts after that. And it was, again, it, it was no question that one little difference. And so this is a huge shift going on in the field that quite honestly, some of the people who argue with me the most about it are some of my colleagues still in the field. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, it. I'm, um, I'm glad you're so acutely aware of this because it's hugely respectful to the patient. Yes. So if the person's sitting with you and they feel respected, they feel like a human being, they don't feel looked down upon or judged, they're going to be more likely to trust you and open up, right? I believe that. And, and, and the other thing for me is, you know, what I will often say to folks if, if, when we're having this conversation is those of us in, in the treatment and recovery field, we can't have it both ways. Right. So for years, we have been battling, this is a disease. These, you know, these are people who have a disease out of one side of our mouth. And then out of the other side of our mouth, we keep calling people addicts. You're yes. an addict. Right. Very and shaming. Which, which says to me, then it's not a disease, it's just shaming or it's a, 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 you know, a, a moral weakness. Person first, medically appropriate. People are not their disease. People with this amazingly complex disease of substance use disorder are not their disease. Everything that comes out of them behaviorally is a symptom of their disease. Yes. And... We can separate disease from person. That is well said. Absolutely. And we have the MRI scans uh, of Nora Volkow. Mm. Decades of uh, brain scans that would show, and the American Medical Association has been calling it a disease for many, many decades. Really, I love what you're saying. Yeah, person first. Person first. And I love your philosophy that you believe that every person is the best expert on themselves and on what they need. So if you have somebody, Keith, who comes to you and addiction has destroyed their life and they say, help me rebuild my life. Right. You tell me that you say, you go according to Stephen Covey's principle, begin with the end in mind. <laughs> tell tell yeah. me a little bit. I find that fascinating. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. So, so the, the first thing, and, and, and again, you said this, I think, in, in the introduction, the, the, the first philosophy that guides my work is that every single human being is their own best resource. They are the best, in this case, they are the best resource in their recovery. Every single human being is their own best own resource. Best resource. That's wonderful. Right? So, so it's, so it's, a, it's a, a, a philosophy that walks in the room with me. Okay. You are your own best resource. Um. I also believe, and I think you said this, and I know sometimes this is, you know, people will argue with me a little bit about this. All of my experience in 40 years tells me 
There is no one on the face of the earth who is more motivated to find recovery than the person in active addiction, even when it doesn't look so. So their behavior might look like they're not interested. But all you have to do is talk to people in recovery who will tell you, because I ask people this all the time in our training, how long before you found recovery as you're in it today, how long before that do you remember your first thought, this is not good? I, I, would, I need to find my way out of that. And it can be years. Yes. And that's the complexity of the disease of why some people find recovery really quickly. Some people, it takes some time. Some people we know, sadly, don't find it. So I, I view people as their own best resource. And I believe if I can do a couple of things relatively quickly, we can get to that Stephen Covey begin with the end in mind, which is you're your own best resource. Two, I'm going to treat you with full autonomy, which means that I will not ever tell you what to do because I believe you will figure out what you need to do. That's a very, it's interesting, Trish, with, with some of my coaching clients, my recovery coaching clients who come to me with some experience in some more traditional corners of the treatment and recovery world, when I talk to them about autonomy, they don't believe me. They right. don't believe that I'm not going to eventually tell them what to do. Absolutely, because it would be a, a real new experience for them. It, a, a totally new experience. Yeah, it's so, so disarming when you say that. When I hear you say you are your own best expert and I'm never going to tell you what to do. And I believe right. you at your core will come up with the answers that are right for you. It's so disarming. All of a that's sudden, right. my, my resistance just fades away. That, that's the hope. Because, if, because so, so here's another piece that goes with that. I, I ask people in our training this all the time. Do people in inactive substance use disorder lie? Do they lie or do they use deceit? And mm -hmm. most people will raise their hand and say, of course. Yeah. And then I will ask them, what's your best explanation for that? And people will say, you know, they're trying to get over, they, they're mm -hmm. in denial. All of, and here's what we know. A huge percentage of the people who in active substance use disorder who lie do so because somebody in their life is holding something over their head. Mm. You go to treatment or you're going to lose your job. You go to treatment or I'm sending you to jail. You go to treatment or I'm going to leave you. You go to treatment or I'm going to take the kids away. Right now. Yeah. Ultimatums, not, right? Ultimatums. Right? And they're and afraid. I'm not, and I'm not judging some of those people who love them and don't know what to do. Right, right, but right. in the world of change, how people come to contemplate change in their life, I don't know about you, but if you take away my freedom of choice, you're going to piss me off. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll dig my heels in. I'll dig, I, I, yeah. I, I think of it, it's like my inner adolescent, right? I'm going sure. to dig my heels in. Yeah. So autonomy says, this is your recovery, person. You tell me where you want to go. If, if you go out and you use, just you know, come and tell me. I'm not going to judge you. We're, we're going to get curious. And then I can ask that question you know, six months from now where would you like to be? Just start brainstorming. And you know, Trish, that for some people on that first day of recovery, it's really difficult to envision what recovery is. Oh, yeah. They're pretty hopeless and they're pretty beaten down and they, yeah. don't, they don't trust their own instincts and right. they think they've destroyed everything good everything. in their life, right? They right. think they're bad. They think That's their inner it. core is bad. Yeah, they have no more hope. Right. And so I'm just simply a person who 
says, play with me. When they say to me, Keith, I don't know what to, just play with me here. Yeah. In the perfect world, let's, let's just even go a week from now. Yeah. Like, where would you like to be in a week from now? And I find if I can, if I can create that safe, trusting space, if I can create that space that honors autonomy, if they really know that I see them as their own best resource, and I truly believe in my bones, it's your recovery, and you are capable of creating a recovery as you see it, it's not real difficult for people to start getting curious with themselves about what recovery may be, because it's a way of coaching that takes away every aspect of how we have treated these folks historically that invites them to be defensive. It invites that I'd be defensive. And it's dangerous, especially with the opioid epidemic to say, to say to somebody, I'm not going to give you Suboxone unless you live in a halfway house. Right. Because you know what? Sometimes they die or I'm not going to give you Suboxone if you don't give me a uh, a drug-free urine. Uh, sometimes they die. They don't come back. They don't take their Suboxone right. and then they, they use, they get fentanyl and they overdose and die. And that's on the prescriber that lays down the ultimatums. Or I'm yes. not going to give you Suboxone if you've got benzos in your urine. Right. I'm going to kick you out of the program if you've got cocaine in your urine. We're punishing people for symptoms of the disease we're treating that's them right. for. That's right. Look, I, I, I believe to this day alive and well there is a punitive narrative that runs through the traditional treatment and recovery world. Yes. Um, and, and what you just described is a part of it, that somehow mm-hmm. these people need to be punished. Somehow mm-hmm. these people need to be told what to do. Now, yep. there's another part of that that I think is a, is a parallel narrative, which is the only recovery is absolute absence. Yes. So, so, Uh, You can't be in recovery if you're on Suboxone, or you know as well as anyone in other corners of the world, someone gets put on Suboxone, and from the first day, some helping person is already asking them, let's set a taper date. It's ridiculous, and it kills people. Yes. And 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 it goes against the research. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, there's this other question I ask people. This is another one I ask when we train recovery coaches, many of whom in our training are people who identify as being in their own recovery. And it speaks to the concept of harm reduction and moderation. I I just asked this the other day because we had a a class going. And so I'll ask the people who are in recovery, do they ever remember a time that in, in active addiction where they would have, they were motivated enough to walk into a treatment center. And the only thing that stopped them is they knew that if they walked in, someone would immediately confront them with abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. And they were not yet at a place where they they were ready to commit to abstinence. Every time I ask that question, Trish, in a room full of of people in recovery, almost every single hand goes up. That there was a time they would have, they, they would have sought treatment, they wanted help. They just weren't ready for this, you know, abstinence or nothing thing. And, yeah. and I know our field is changing, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. And we're, we're starting to wrap our head around moderation and, and other harm reduction practices. But it's maddening to me um, some of the practices that still go on and some of the thinking that is still in my field 
that these people need to be told what to do. It's infuriating and it moves them in the opposite direction of the direction yes. that we hope that they would go. So yes. let's talk a little bit about ambivalence. It's a normal yes. part of yes. a recovery, right? And I yeah. mean, I, I get people in my office who, you know, they'll tell me about they've had two DWIs, their wife has taken the kids away, filed for divorce, they've lost their job because of an alcohol problem. And I'll ask them, well, what would you like to see happen in treatment? And they might scratch their head and say, I'd like to be able to do controlled drinking. And right. sometimes they laugh, they catch themselves and they say, oh, I already tried that and it didn't work. But sometimes that's actually what they want, right? They're, not, they're not ready to quit. They're not ready that's, to take that first step. Um, if you're, say, for example, Keith, I bet there's a lot of people right now listening to our podcast who are not yet ready to take that first step and maybe they don't have the confidence to do it. Um, maybe they are ashamed, they're defeated, they're paralyzed, they're stuck. And they know it will be good for them, but they just can't galvanize it to, to make that first move toward recovery. What right. kinds of questions would you ask? You are the king of motivation inter motivational <laughs> interviewing. I, I love your questions, the probing questions that, that help them access their own motivation, internal yeah. motivation for change and maybe access that personal power. Right. Can, right. can you talk yeah. to the listening audience? If there if anybody who's out there who's stuck and miserable and uh, maybe complacent or scared to make a change. Yeah. So the first thing, and, and, and I do have this conversation with folks I work with because most people, again, especially if you've, if you've had any interaction with some of the traditional corners of the treatment and recovery world, You've been told, you've, there have been two words that have been used um, yeah. that, again, are, are, we, we need to get rid of, um, in denial and resistant. You're in denial or you're resistant. And, and you right. use the A word, which is what we're talking about here, ambivalence. Yes. So I teach my clients about ambivalence and that ambivalence is a normal part of the change process for human beings. And I'll ask any of your listeners to think about a time in their life they were contemplating a really significant change, especially like a behavior change yeah. or a big move or something. Ambivalence is, I want to, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to, I it's want to. It's normal. It's normal. Yeah. Now, here's what we've done historically in the treatment and recovery world. Someone shows up with him struggling with ambivalence. I want to, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to. I would make the argument in the traditional treatment world, we have focused on the I don't want to part. Right. And we've labeled that, you know, in, in, in denial or resistant, and we've confronted it. Which or, or, just, or defiant. Denial, or defiant, yes. resistant. Yes. Yeah. And they're yes, all, yes, we're yes. all shaming the patient again. That's it. And as soon as, and as, you know, the other thing we can call in, you know, this could be a whole nother conversation, just our more updated understanding of, of how our brain conceptualizes trust and safety um, or, or threat. And, and one of the things I, that I look at now using that information is how quickly some of these old ways of interacting with people put people in fight flight. Yes. It just puts them in fight flight because we, we, we attack yeah. them. And they stop listening and rightly so. And they so. stop listening and yeah. rightly so, right? Yeah. So, what, what we're trying to do in the kind of recovery coaching I practice and that, and that we, we teach 
is to listen to the ambivalence and to listen to the I want to part. Ah, okay. The f- we're putting now, the focus on the wrong part. Yeah. So let's, so wow, I hear you really want to, but I can also honor, I'm, I'm here on the other side. I'm, but Trish, when you, my experience with my clients, when we talk about this phenomena using the word ambivalence, there's no judgment, there's no shame, it's normalized. And what I find is that my clients can much more easily wrap their head around it and thus be willing to sit in it and, and, and talk about the I want to, I don't want to, because it's normal. So what so, would you ask? Would you ask, like, um, uh, give me a couple of reasons or talk to me from the side of yourself that would really like to put all, the drug all of those down? right, right. So let's, so let's, you know, so when when you hear that, I want a part. Let's let's talk about that. Let's get really curious about that. What what is that? What do you think about? Where do you go? I also don't want to minimize the I don't want a part simply okay. because it's normal. Yeah, I, you want to talk to both sides of that. Person. Both sides, and this is normal. This is not a substance use disorder issue. Yeah, this is a behavior change issue. Yeah. And of course, you're ambivalent. So we talk about ambivalence, and then this, then in that discussion about ambivalence, especially with someone you know brand new, really presenting with ambivalence, maybe presenting in the you know in the world of stages of change and that you know pre contemplation which right. to me is just ambivalence. It's just sure. ambivalence. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the world of motivational interviewing, some of the things that we think about is before I even worry about asking questions, before I even worry about fact gathering, can I just reflect? Can I just say, hey, human being, here's what I hear you saying. Wow, you're really pissed. You're really confused. You're really not thrilled you have to be here. It really kind of sucks that your PO says you have to be. I don't like my freedom taken away either. Mm -hmm. Reflections is one of the most powerful ways to connect with another human being, especially when that human being is loaded with emotion. Yes. And, and when a component of that motion is, is angry, resentful, instead of confronting it, just, Mm -hmm. I I hear you. So you join him. So you join, you reflect, you reflect, you reflect. I hear you saying. Yeah. Then the other part in, in, in motivational interviewing, which their research says is the most powerful thing you can do to connect with the person you're working with is affirmations. Ah. You're, you're, you're really working hard here. Man, you, you are really, you're really thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Wow, right. You really took some risks this week in, in, in considering making some changes. I just, want, I just want to affirm that you're here today, right? Those two things, affirmations and reflections, yes. help, especially when a person walks in and, and maybe they are angry about being here or, yeah. or really steeped in their ambivalence. I want to, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to. I hear you. I hear you. And, right. and f- again, for that person who is being forced maybe to do something, yeah, yes. I don't have any problem, Trish, saying to someone, it pisses me off when people take my freedom of choice away too. I hear right. you. 
Yeah. So you're going to say, I really respect the fact that even though you've been treated lousy by almost every detox and treatment center you've been in, and your family's giving you ultimatums, and you don't know me and you don't trust me, yet you're here. So what does that tell us? And I'm going to honor and respect that part of yourself, that that part of yourself that actually wants to reclaim your your life. I'm honoring you today. I think I think, you know, let's let's applaud that part. That's awesome. So here's another way I honor that. It's not uncommon for people to show up, you know, wanting to do some work with me who, again, it's, it's not their first attempt at, at, at finding recovery. So they, they've made other attempts. They've been in treatment, things like that. Again, there is a, there is a, a bit of a history in our field yep. of when people show up for treatment, second, third, fourth, fifth time, they get messages like, you know, put the cotton in your ears, you know, oh, or pull yeah. it out of your ears, put it in your mouth. You're thinking, got you here. That's so insulting. It's horrendously insulting. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things I do when people show up with some previous attempts at recovery yeah. is let's blow that up and celebrate that. Right? Like, first of all, you're back. Awesome. Right. Cause yeah. you, you and I both know sometimes people don't show up again. Right. Second of all, let's look at, at previous attempts at recovery as you define it. And, um, oh, five years ago, you were able to string together six months. That's awesome. Tell me about that. And how did yeah, you do how that? did you do it, right? And what was right? life like during and those six months? what was life like? And then somewhere we can get into what tripped you up. But the part that we have historically not done this is where you treat someone as their own best resource. Gotcha. Every single experience you've had in trying to find recovery says to me, you're highly motivated. Yes. You're, you're, you're in some cases, literally dying to find recovery. Right. And you have had experiences in your past where you were able to move forward. I don't take that lightly. Let's look at that so we can bring that into the present. It's another way of honoring. So, another bias of mine around language yes. is I view people as in, it, it, from the first moment in their active addiction, when they thought to themselves, I got to do something about this from my end of things that from that moment, they've been in a recovery process. It's the beginning, isn't it? It's the it's beginning. The, it's the intention and intention yes. is 99% of the yes. game. And most people recover without treatment, at least yes. 60% Spontaneous recovery. Sponta- without treatment. Yeah. So there, there is hope for the person yeah. listening, right? What would you tell the person listening right now who thinks that I've, I've tried four different treatments and everybody's <laughs> left me and I have no confidence in my ability to do it, right? Look, I, I, I would say to anyone, and, and you and I have been long enough, uh, around long enough to see this. Um, I don't pretend to predict what recovery will look like for anybody. Yeah. I also am not. I also am not unaware that people die from this disease, right? People die from lots of different diseases. They die from this one. What I do believe is that many, many people um, have not found themselves in front of somebody that truly listened to them, truly honored them, treated them with autonomy, right? That, that I would say, keep looking for somebody who, who can bring these kinds of, of, ways of being to their work um, because there is hope. There's always, always hope. But I, I, I respect the fact, Trish, that 
that a lot of people, because I've been in these conversations with clients, a lot of people have not had a good experience with the traditional treatment world. Um, Keith, I remember one young woman who was uh, pregnant. Uh, she was uh, she had opioid use disorder, and she couldn't get into any local treatment. So she went up to uh, Buffalo and walked into the emergency room, waited a couple hours, went into an intake room with a woman who turned her back on her, mm. and she was asking her all sorts of questions without looking at her, typing into the computer. And my patient had discussed that she had lost custody of her other children because of this devastating yeah. heroin addiction. Right. And the woman at the end of the interview said nothing except for looked, looked at her bump and said, I hope the baby's going to be okay. Uh, and my patient was, was trying so hard. She wanted to keep this baby. She wanted to do it right this time. She right. was there. She was seeking treatment. She didn't feel good about herself. And this was judgment uh, from, yeah. from the moment she walked into the emergency room. So right. I love the fact that you're underlining this point. You're not, you're not um, uh, dropping this point. It's like the, this is everything. Yeah. This, how you talk to the person, how you, how you make them feel. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people are going to forget what you said and they're going to forget what you right. did, but they're never, ever going to forget how you made them feel. And That's I can it. actually... I love, this is how you co-create this atmosphere of trust and safety, where it's all going to start to happen, right? Where the person's going to start having less shame, more confidence, and actually self-motivate. You're giving him freedom to access that uh, personal power, I guess. Yeah, look, that's a, that's a great point. And it's another, it's another, I guess, philosophy that guides my work. I have no belief whatsoever that I am capable of motivating another human being. I, I, I don't believe we can, right. you know, inject motivation into another human being. I yeah. believe we can engage with people in a way that helps them find their motivation. There, there's a, a, a researcher out of, of uh, Yale, Mike Panalone, um, who does a lot of work in the substance use disorder world. And he always talks about that every single person has enough motivation. They sometimes need some help and support in finding it, identifying it, figuring out how to access it. How do I then take that motivation and maybe in this case, build recovery? So I don't view myself as, as someone who goes in and motivates people. I also want to be really clear about something, Tris. Mm. I also do not minimize the dangers of substance use disorder. Right. So, yeah. I, I, you know, so when I am working with somebody, uh, you know, I, I think my clients would say that I model I model the coach skill of I speak the truth. Right. I, I will be upfront with people about what I see, what I'm worried about, but it will always come from this framework of autonomy. So anything I say to you, person I'm working with, it's just coming from my perspective, which doesn't mean it's truth. So you get to decide, is it relevant for you? In fact, when I first meet clients, I often say to them, there, might, there will be times in our work together where I will share with you a thought, uh, uh, something pops into my head, right. and you have every right and need to accept, reject, or modify. So if what I say makes sense to you, go for it. If what I say sounds like it came from outer space, tell me. I won't take it personally because it's just coming from inside me, my life experience, which doesn't mean when it lands in your ears, it's not going to feel relevant to you. Just say so. I like that. Freedom or to tell you. It. 
Yeah. You know, I could say to you, hey, that's not not working for me, or I, disag- I disagree, or yeah. I think we're going down uh, a path that I don't want to go down. I wanted to that's go it. down this path. Wow, that's really open communication, right? It, it, uh, what I believe is, is it honors what's going on anyway. You know, in the world of conversational intelligence, um, which is a wonderful modality created by a woman by the name of Judith Glazer, which looks at trust and safety and yeah. kind of the neurochemistry of it, she always talks about make the invisible visible in, in our conversation as a helping person. Right. So what I believe is everything I'm doing is just making visible what's going on anyway. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't do this and I tell people what to do and I, and I, I, I know best, I know what's going on in their head. They're telling me to take a walk, yep. right? They're all defensive. Yeah. They're not listening. Right. So if, if that's what's going on, you know, how can we interact with people that gets rid of that? Doesn't minimize the, the, the substance use disorder, but honors how most of us human beings come to making a commitment to change in our life, which is it has to come from inside. So if I feel safe and respected when I'm with you, then someday you're going to be able to say, can I share a concern that I have? Yes. You're asking me if you can share a concern that you have, yes. or you can say, would you like to know what I think? And That's at right. that point, you've already earned your trust. And I might tentatively say, well, all right, if you have right. to, right. but That's you've right. already given me permission to shoot it down and tell you that it's not That's helpful, it. or I don't have to take your advice, which is wonderful. But yet you can say, you know, I'm really, I'm really scared when you talk to me about the people you're hanging out with. And yes. my concern is that there's a lot of fentanyl on the streets and you might, you know, you're at risk here. Yeah. No. And then, and then what I'm going to say, if I say something like that, yeah. I'm then going to say something like, so how does what I said land for you? Wonderful. You check right? it out with them. So, so it's still, yeah. up, it's still up to them what they want to yeah. do with this, maybe this, statement or this thought or this intuition that I just threw into the middle of the room, they get to decide, is it relevant to them? And, and, you know, I I always say this is easy for me to say, Trish, because I've been doing this for a really long time, but this way of working with people works. It works. It works with substance use disorder. It, It works much better. And, and it's not anything specifically about me personally. It's a way of coming at people. It works because we give people space to think for themselves. To We, we let them know that we believe, again, there's no one on the face of the earth who want, who's more motivated to find recovery than you are. I know that. I believe that. Let, let's yeah. work with that. Um, now, yeah, Keith, it's, yeah. This is wonderful because it decreases shame. Yes. And, and it motivates and it gives the person a template for future relationships. So they're yeah. going to look for relationships where they feel like they're equals and they're respected and they can talk about their feelings without being criticized. Now, let me ask you, I've got uh, two questions for you. Yeah. One, one is, as a recovery coach, how do you help a person grow sober support networks Mm-hmm. And the other question I've got is, um, what's important to to know about working with families that have uh, um, family member with an active addiction? Yeah, yeah. 
So the the sober support question is a wonderful question, Trish, because it's a it's a it's a it's not that simple uh, for folks. You know, I've got a 35 year old guy I'm working with. He's just he's just awesome. Married, couple of kids. He struggled, you know, since his teen years with alcohol use disorder and various attempts at recovery. And he's doing just some wonderful, wonderful work right now. And and part of the work is figuring out he has a group of people around him that are lifelong friends, meaningful, meaningful relationships. Oh, wonderful. Many of whom drink a whole lot. Okay. And he's struggling. I bet. I bet he's lonely. Right. He's lonely. He doesn't want to give these people up. They're significant people to him. Yet he's recognizing Man, it, it it's tough to be around them. So, sure. so so you know. So some of the conversation I have with folks is, look, I have no belief whatsoever that as a person in recovery, you only have to have recovering people around you. What you do need is you need people around you who get this, who just get it. Yes. They get where you're at. They get what you need. They're people who you can have conversation with and talk about what kind of supports you need. Mm-hmm. Look, if you can find some people in your life that are in recovery, awesome. So, right. you know, here in the Rochester area, do you want to get hooked up with, with you know, with recovery fitness? Um, uh, you know, more and more people are looking at recovery supports either in addition to or separate from 12 steps. So recovery Dharma, smart recovery, uh, other, other life, life ring, other, right. Other recovery supports that speak different languages. Cause one of the ways I've, I've always thought about this, Trish is certain recovery supports have language that resonates with people sure. or it doesn't resonate. with people. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so let's find supports that do, and those mm-hmm. could be in the more traditional recovery world. Those could be a men's group. Those could be the kind of group you do, right? right? That isn't specifically just for substance use disorder, but helps people grow. So I think, yeah. again, we try and expand that conversation, urge people, you know, support people who may be doing so. I call them experiments. You know, go check it out. I don't know if it's for you or not. Sure. You know, are you and, willing to check it out? And the people that you train at Recovery Coach University, yep. these are mostly peer advocates, right? Yes. And would they go to a meeting with a patient if the patient wanted to try out an AA meeting, but that person was too scared right. or too ashamed to darken the door of an AA meeting or an SOS meeting or a right. smart recovery meeting? So, so in the world, at least in New York, you know, I can only speak for New York State, that folks who get this certified recovery peer advocate that, that yeah. Lori and I train. They get they go to work for agencies. They treatment agencies in our area are employing them. Cool. Whether they accompany somebody to an AA meeting is totally dependent on the roof they work under. Oh, I see. Some okay. agencies support that. Some agencies do not. Um, for someone like me, who's in my own you know business, yeah. I don't have to answer to anyone. Yeah. I've I've gone with people to rock. Rec- recovery fitness. I've gone with people to AA meetings. Um, you know, it's part so, of what I do. So helpful, right? Because, and also so, you, a peer recovery advocate or yourself as a professional coach, you might know if a, a woman says, I need a woman's meeting, yes. or if a, a person says, I need a professional meeting where people are carrying briefcases, or right. I uh, basically, I'm a young person. I want young people in recovery. Uh, you can help steer them toward a meeting where they might fit in best. And there are people who won't go unless you 
actually go with, go them. with them. Right. Right. So I wanted to comment on your second question about family because it's, yeah. it's so important and it, and, and it's, uh, you know, having done family therapy for many years uh, with many families struggling with substance use disorder, it's, it's, it's near and dear to my heart. Everything we're talking about in how to come at somebody who's struggling with, with substance use disorder, every single one of these concepts are relevant to family members. Now, let me say this, much harder to do when it's somebody you birthed, right? Oh, when it's sure. somebody you love with every fiber of your being. But yeah. we actually do a training at Recovery Coach University called Family Supported Recovery. Oh, cool. Where we, we train family members in how to use some of these same concepts I'm talking about, how to come at somebody with autonomy, how to use reflections instead of getting in arguments, how to treat somebody as their own best resource. Now, again, I, I, I repeat this a hundred times, much harder when it's your family, but I would make an argument, Trish, as much as we were talking earlier about some of the stigmatized ways we have dealt with people with substance use disorder. In many ways, we have been even more judgmental to family member and parents. Oh, for sure. So, so, you know, we have, again, in the world of stigmatized language, I always say to family members, there is no more complex relational state to be in than loving somebody with an active addiction who you love with every fiber of your being. That's affirming. It just doesn't get any crazier than that. Yet, what we have done in the treatment world for many years is we have wrapped that complexity up into stop enabling. You're codependent. Or the other one that drives me crazy is just let go. Right. Sure. When it's your child and there's an active heroin addiction going on and there's fentanyl on the streets. I have never personally, and I just say this, and I'm, I'm blessed. I, I have two adult children, neither dealt with substance use disorder, but you know, dealt with other challenges as they headed to adulthood. I have never, and I, I think I'm a rel- <laughs> relatively self-aware person. Yeah. I have never figured out how to let go. But here's, a, here's how I have rejiggered it in my head. Yeah. And, I, and I find this helpful with family members. How about instead of looking at this concept of letting go, which I believe most parents know in their heart they can't, even though they've been told to by professionals, how about we think about how to hold on differently? Oh, that's, that's powerful. Right. So, so how we held on to our children when they were little is different than how we need to hold on to them when they're adolescent or adulthood or struggling with substance use disorder. Yeah. But you're always going to hold on. It's just, Maybe we can do this in some ways that are a little bit more peaceful, that honor autonomy, that lessen the arguing. So, Keith, if you are going to give advice to uh, anyone out there struggling with a substance use disorder tonight or their family members, what would that advice be? So the first, you know, the first thing I think of, Trish, with that question is, is although I believe we're moving in a great direction and we're, we're, we're at a better place than, than we have been in the past, uh, substance use disorder, addiction, mental illness still tends to uh, be diseases that, that, that flourish in the dark, so to speak. Families are, are afraid to speak about them, embarrassed, shame. Um, and, and so my first thing I always want to throw out to, to folks is speak. Find people in your, even if it's not a professional, 
find a friend, a family member, clergy, somebody you trust um, so that, that you have a place to go and talk about this. And then, you know, if you want to move into the world of, of professional helpers, um, I would like to think that these days, if you were to call the, any of the treatment programs in your area, um, that they either employ or, or would be able to direct you towards organizations in your area that are employing recovery coaches, whether that's coach, internal coaches under a roof of an agency or n- knowing somebody like me who's a coach in the community in, in his own business, um, ask for recovery coaches. I think, I think we're bringing, we're just bringing a different way of coming at this than, than even still exists in some corners of the traditional treatment world. So um, and reach if, out, reach and out if, for help. Great advice. And if you don't find somebody that treats you with respect and who doesn't respect your own personal autonomy, who doesn't believe that you are exactly where you need to be and you're the expert of your own life and you can co-create your future, mm. right? Then keep looking. Keep looking. If it doesn't feel good, yeah. the connection doesn't feel good, then don't go back and find somebody out there who will respect you, care yes. about you, try hard to get to know you, and walk with you on this journey of recovery. Yeah. And you said once to me that made me laugh, you said, if somebody said, I want to grow a pair of wings and fly to the moon, you would, <laughs> you would say, cool. Uh-huh. Well, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, so every now and then somebody asks me what how I best describe coaching, just in general. Yeah, and I always say here, you know, my way of looking at it is if somebody called me and said I want to hire you to coach me to build a set of wings to fly to the moon, that my reaction to that would be, oh my god, that is so cool. Let's get moving, <laughs> because I believe one of two things would happen: either the person's gonna, and I want to be their coach when they do that. <laughs> You'd be famous. I'd be famous. Or they're not. (laughs) And they will come to the decision to reevaluate their goals. Perfect. Not my place to tell them, don't build the wings. I love that. Now, Keith, if anybody wants to uh, take a look at your website, uh, give us your website, please. It's it's just KeithGreerCoaching.com. And your podcast? Is The Helping Conversation. And you can find it on all the podcast platforms. I interview, including Dr. Halligan, I yep. interview all <laughs> sorts of people who help others and not just your traditional helpers like psychiatrist, clinician, coach, therapist, a variety of different people. And I'm about halfway through season three. So, you know, uh, iTunes and the other places you can check it out. I love how much energy and devotion you put toward finding out how to connect the most effective way you possibly can in order to really help somebody. You put a lot of time and energy into figuring out what, how to respect the other person and how to empower the other person uh, yeah. and how to co-create this atmosphere of trust and autonomy and safety. And I really appreciate all your words tonight. I think this has been a feast. I think the people in the audience who were unmotivated in the beginning, I think maybe, <laughs> maybe feel a little more hopeful and they'll probably be trying to contact you. That's my hunch. Okay. Trish, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation. Absolutely, Keith. Thank you for coming. This is uh, Recovery the Hero's Journey signing off. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time 
on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.